Vida Mundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. remember earlier on in, in, in the book of Hosea, we've seen that the people of Israel have been unfaithful to God. They've broken their covenant with God time and time again. We read about a month ago that, that not only have they broken their covenant, but they're serving other gods. They're worshiping the Baals. They're, they're, they're surrendering their lives to all these other deities. And yet here God says, I will bring back, and, and, and in, from verses 18 to 20, he says it five times. It's, it's clear. God is the one doing the action. He's the one bringing back Israel to himself. And in these two verses, three times the word betrothed appears, which Pastor Jonathan has explained. I just want to remind us, it's a buying back, a bringing back. God will bring back Israel to himself, but let's not forget the other narrative going on here. There is a real prophet by the name of Hosea, and there is a real wife, a real person who's been unfaithful to her husband, to Hosea. She's been prostituting herself. So just as God is bringing back Israel to himself, Hosea is also bringing back his wife to himself despite of her prostitution, despite of her sleeping around. And so we've, we've settled here not just because of the importance of this action, but why God does it. Why does God bring back Israel to himself? And why does Hosea bring back Gomer to himself? And what we find in these passages is that the why is rooted in a few attributes. These are not all the attributes of God in Scripture, but they are a few. So the last two weeks, we've learned about God's justice and righteousness. God brings back Israel based on, in other words, who he is. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. And that's why he brings her back. And so we've learned these last two weeks that, that the aspects of righteousness and justice are ethical, forensic, and theocratic. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can search our sermons on Facebook, YouTube, or SoundCloud, and you can listen to these. But it's not just that God brings back Israel, but it's why he does it, and he does it according to who he is. We need to know who God is, and in fact, that's why verse 20 ends with, you will know the Lord. As God is bringing back Israel to himself, as Hosea is bringing back Gomer, the, the result of that is you will know your God. If you didn't know him before, you will know him now. So we're going to focus today on the next two words. He doesn't just bring her back in justice and righteousness, but he also brings her back in steadfast love and compassion. And as we saw in the video, this term, 
Steadfast love is, and, and the Hebrew is hesed, and I, I mention this because, in a sense, it's very difficult to translate. There is no English word in our English language, and in fact, in Spanish, it's even more difficult because there's no word that even comes close in, in the Spanish language to what this term means. This term is a legal term. It has a binding contract. So, so every time you see the word steadfast love or loving kindness, sometimes in Scripture it also appears as love or mercy or faithfulness or devotion. When we see this word derived from the Hebrew word hesed, really what this term means is a legal contract. So in other words, it's a loyal love. That's why I do like the translation steadfast love because at least we can understand there is a consistency in God's love. To put it simply, his steadfast love does not change. It's immovable. It's consistent. It does not change. And so it's a difficult term to translate, but it's always found in a relationship aspect. And as the video showed, God will show constant love or steadfast love even at times when his people don't like in Hosea God is showing love to Israel even though Israel is not showing love to God they're not worshiping God they're not interested in God and yet God is showing steadfast love so to better understand this we need to leave Hosea for a moment and so I warn you ahead of time We'll be looking at different passages because in order to understand this attribute, we can't just stay in Hosea. We need to look at it in some ways throughout all of Scripture. So I want you to go with me to Exodus 34. And in a sense, Exodus is, is the book where God reveals his name. He reveals who he is, the name Yahweh, I am. And in Exodus 34, this is important to, to see. I want you to see this with me. God will reveal himself again to Israel. He's done it already in this book, but he'll do it time and time again. And in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, here's what it says. The Lord passed before him. This is talking about Moses. So the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means, everyone say no means, okay, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we're going to stop here. Our English translations do not help in this case. They translate verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. But in the original language, what the passage really says, it's not the Lord, the Lord. What it actually says is, I am I am. So God repeats twice, Yahweh, Yahweh. Think about this in the New Testament. Jesus often says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. Anytime in scripture when you see a back-to-back -back repetition of words, there is emphasis involved. So God is saying twice, 
I want you to understand, this is who I am. It's I am, I am merciful, the same word we find in Hosea. Another translation would be, I am, I am compassionate. It's who God is. It's rooted in the being of God. I, I am compassionate. He's also gracious. He's also slow to anger. Now notice, it does not say God does not get angry. The passage does not tell us that God does not act in wrath. He does. He just does it slowly. He is slow to anger. There will be times of wrath that are expressed through God, but it's slow. He is far more patient than he is quick to act on his wrath. So he's slow to anger, and here's the hesed term here in this passage. He is abounding in steadfast love. It's abundant. It's not small. It's not short. It's not time limited. So, so God describes himself in Exodus 34 as a steadfast love. It's who he is. Now, why is this important? Well, because verse 7 says he keeps his steadfast love. And here are two aspects to steadfast love. One, it's rooted in forgiveness. Forgiving the iniquity to thousands. So God forgives. So his steadfast love is rooted in forgiveness. But I want you to notice the next part of the verse. But he also visits iniquity. Now, this isn't like your neighbor coming over and giving you sugar. That, that's not how this is meant to be read here. It's, it's not like, oh, here comes God visiting iniquity. Hey, you need some sugar. No. What it really means is he's coming to punish iniquity. So in the steadfast love, there are two aspects to it. God forgives because of his steadfast love, but then there is consequence for sin as well. And in a world where we want to philosophize about love, the Greeks did it years ago. We do it now. What does love really mean? And then further, what does the love of God really mean? In our culture, this is such a debate because love is sort of like only good in our eyes. It's only a lovey-dovey emotion. But Scripture does not allow us to define God the way our culture wants to define love. Yes, God is love. Yes, he is steadfast love. But in his love, he corrects. He does not pass over iniquity. There is consequence to our actions when we sin. And that is not rooted in a hateful God. God has defined himself as what? A God of compassion, of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithful in this passage. So in order for us to understand this steadfast love of God and compassion, we cannot eliminate the fact that God does bring consequence to sin. And again, I hear this so many times. It's such a debate in our culture today where, where Christians are like, can a loving God really send people to hell? Yes, because sin still needs to be punished. It's not an act of an unloving God. It's an act of a steadfast, loving God. Yet, 
there's also forgiveness involved. So let me clarify this a little bit more with you. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. Another passage where God makes a covenant. He'll make a covenant here with Moses and the people of Israel. But in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, God makes another covenant with David. And I want you to notice this idea of God's steadfast love, but also the idea of iniquity being punished. So, so look what 2 Samuel 7, 12 says. When your days are fulfilled, this is uh, Nathan prophesying to David. So in a sense, he's saying, David, when you die, when, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I want to pause here to explain that there's two things going on here. There is a Davidic seed where Solomon will reign after David, so he will build a house. This is the famous temple of Solomon that we read throughout Scripture and history. But then there's also a kingdom that will be established forever, which is showing us that out of the Davidic line will come a king who will establish his kingdom forever, eternal. Obviously, Solomon will not live forever, so this is pointing us to Christ. So there's two things here, but as far as Solomon goes, look at verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Psalm, whom I put away from before you. And verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Notice again. There's God's steadfast love, but what does he say? When Solomon, if he commits iniquity, he will be punished with the rods of men. He will be whipped with the rods of men. Now, I want you to understand this. God never made a covenant with Saul, who's also mentioned here. He never made Saul king. The people asked for a king. They, they, they asked for Saul. And so God says, that was never my intention. But with David, I will establish this hesed, this, this, this loving kindness with David's kingdom. Now, this again, the passage makes it clear. Will Solomon commit iniquity? Yes. Read Solomon's life. He does. He sins Time and time again, does that remove God's steadfast love from him? No. Time and time again, Solomon will fail God. And time and time again, although there's consequence for that sin, the steadfast love of God remains and God will forgive Solomon. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, and I think this gives us the best understanding of what's going on here with these words. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the Bible lets us know that there are blessings and there are curses depending on obedience and disobedience. So in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God gives us 12 verses where if the people obey, they will be blessed. But he gives 65 verses where if the people disobey, there will be curses upon them that would fall upon them. What does this tell us? about the consequence of sin and, and the steadfast love 
of God. It's not God who changes. But it's we who either move closer in obedience to God or further and further away. In other words, the good news of this, of this truth, of this essence of who God is, is that my obedience and disobedience don't move God. They don't remove God's steadfast love. But I can either have consequences that bring positive aspects or negative aspects. So we go back to Hosea, chapter 2, 19. You don't have to turn there, but I want to bring you back to this. Why is Israel being redeemed? Have they offered up sacrifices to God? Have they said, Lord, we don't want to serve other gods? No, they have not. So why does God show steadfast love? Because it's who he is. It's what he is. This understanding of God's steadfast love, yes, there's consequence of sin, but there's also forgiveness of sin. And that's the good news for me and you, that we can be forgiven for our sins despite of the many sins that we commit. It does not remove God's steadfast love from us. Now, the mistake here is to read Hosea and leave this action only up to God. The mistake is to think that when Hosea shows hesed or, or loving kindness and compassion to Gomer, the mistake, and in our carnal instincts, it's almost natural. We want to say, oh, of course Hosea is doing that, but because he's showing who God is. Hosea is doing that because, because he's expressing to Israel, uh, I'm sorry, to Gomer what God is expressing to Israel. In other words, he's just enacting who God is towards Israel. And in our carnal instincts, we want to go, well, yeah, of course, God forgives, and Hosea only forgives Gomer and only brings her back in steadfast love and in compassion because he's reflecting who God is, but that's just simply not true. He's not just reflecting who God is. Scripture itself commands us to show steadfast love to one another. I know it's been mentioned before, but it's good to mention it here. That God's attributes in Hosea are, in theology, what are called communicable. All that simply means is God can do them, but so can we. That's all that means. God can show steadfast love, but so can I. God can show compassion, but so can I. It's not just something, again, that Hosea is doing because he's trying to show God's love towards Israel. It's, it's a wrong understanding. Hosea is a real man who's been cheated on time and time again. There is a real carnal inclination for Hosea to say, I don't have to forgive her. She's been sleeping around with other men. In fact, if you'll remember, you can read this at home, but, but earlier on in this chapter, uh, Gomer has, has, gotten so, has had so many lovers that she doesn't even remember who Hosea is. She's had so many lovers that she can't distinguish between husband or client. When Hosea appears to her, she has, he has, she has no idea who he is. She does not remember who he is. So there is a real carnal inclination for Hosea to go, I don't have to forgive her. She doesn't deserve my forgiveness yet. 
He's called to show steadfast love because he's God's prophet. And in our day as Christians, we're called to show steadfast love to one another. Watch this in Zechariah chapter 7. You can go there with me. Scripture does not leave this ambiguous. It, it doesn't leave it in the, in the air per se. Give me a second here to. Find it. Uh, Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. Here's what, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, chapter 7, verses 9 and, and 10. And here's what it says. We'll read it from verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show Kindness, here the word is hesed, so show steadfast love and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So here we see a clear command in Scripture where we are to show as believers, or in this case the people of Israel, are to show steadfast love to one another. This is in part my issue with, with social justice movements of today because we ignore the one another aspect and we jump straight to the widow and the orphan and the poor and the oppressed. But this passage, notice the order. Show it to one another. Now look, I'll be honest with you. I know many Christians that have no problem with helping the poor, with giving to the homeless, with going to poor countries and spending weeks. But I know a lot of Christians, even those that do that, that have a problem with loving their neighbor in-house, that have a problem with forgiving neighbors in-house, the people that they see every day, the people that they interact with every day. And Zechariah tells us we are to show compassion and steadfast love to one another. Hosea is to show steadfast love to Gomer. He is to keep his marital covenant despite of what she's done. Now, is that easy? It's not. It's very hard. Humanly speaking, it's very hard to do this. We see this in the Old Testament with Ruth and Naomi. The whole book of Ruth is rooted on this steadfast love, but not just from God towards his people. You see it in the book, people showing steadfast love to people. Remember the story. In the beginning, Naomi loses her husband, and then later on, her sons, her sons had married Moabite women. Uh, Naomi is from Bethlehem. She's a Jew. So you got a, a difference in, in, in racial statuses. And Naomi, once her sons die, she's like, well, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to my home country. I've got no reason to be here. And so Ruth and Orpha, uh, one leaves and goes back to her country, but Ruth stays with her. Why? She had no reason to. There's no benefit there's, no, there, there, there's nothing that, that will give Ruth any benefit in staying with Naomi. And in and, and this time and day, they're both widowed. That means no land, no property, no, no, they're in some ways 
Yeah, they're, they're a widow. They, they have no one to care for them. There is no benefit in Ruth going with Naomi. And secondly, she's a Moabite, so that really lessens her chances, and yet she goes. Why? She shows steadfast love. I don't need to show love to Naomi, but she does it anyway. She shows steadfast love. Later on, we see that Boaz will marry Ruth, and again, he shows steadfast love to Ruth. He doesn't have to. She's a Moabite. There, there's, there's, there's cultural clashes there. And yet, he shows steadfast love. Ruth is a perfect example that it's not just God who shows steadfast love, but as believers, we are called to show steadfast love to one another. We are called to show compassion to one another. Now, again, I know some of us go, yeah, well, that's Old Testament. That's nice. But we see this in the New Testament as well. In fact, one of the most famous parables is rooted on this steadfast love and compassion. It's the Good Samaritan parable. Even if you've never read it in the Bible, many people are familiar with it. It's, it's mentioned so many times. The Good Samaritan parable is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. And one day we'll be able to, to, to unpack this more. But let me give you a brief summary of this passage. A lawyer comes to Jesus. He's a, a student of the law, in a sense, is really what, what it means there. And he tells Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do to get to heaven? And Jesus responds, okay, well, you're a student of the law. You're an expert, so what does the law say? How do you read it? And he answers correctly. Okay, well, you got to love God and you got to love your neighbor. And Jesus says, yeah, all right, you passed the test. And then scripture lets us know that the man seeking to justify himself says, well, who is my neighbor? That's the key question of the text. The guy is trying to justify, do I really need to show steadfast love and compassion to everyone? Do I really need to show this to everyone? Who's, who's my neighbor? And in comes the parable. And Jesus explains, there's a man who gets robbed and is beaten half to death. He's left on the side of the road. And a priest comes and ignores him. And then a Levite comes, which is part of the priesthood, and ignores him. And then a Samaritan, not even a Jewish man. The point is there that if anyone is supposed to help, it's not the Samaritan. But the Samaritan ends up helping out. It's the Samaritan who shows steadfast love and compassion. But then Jesus ask this question, who was the neighbor? Again, the passage is rooted on two questions. Who is my neighbor? But Jesus asked the law expert, who was a neighbor? The emphasis here is, as Christians, we do not ask, who is my neighbor? We ask, am I a neighbor? Again, as Christians, we do not ask who is my neighbor. To put it in, in our terms, we don't walk around and go, does he deserve forgiveness? Does she deserve Well, She talks behind my back. I don't have to forgive her. No, that's not the consequence of a Christian or the actions of a Christian. We don't live life that way. We're not called to live life going, this one deserves it, this one doesn't, this one deserves it, this one doesn't. And the reason for that is, is because as we've already seen, God does not do that with us. 
So why does God show steadfast love? Because it's who he is. He doesn't go, well, Henry, do you really deserve my forgiveness today? No, he gives it not on the basis of the sin that I commit, but on the basis of his steadfast love. But it does not stop with God. We are called to forgive, and I know that it's hard because if we're honest with ourselves, the most damage in our lives are not from people we don't know. It's from those closest to us. You may be sitting here being betrayed by a friend or, or by an, an ex-boyfriend or even ex-husband or wife. You may have a lot of reasons in your heart to not forgive. And even though it's hard, Scripture does not excuse us from it. Peter asked this question to Jesus as well in Matthew 18, 21. Jesus preaches and teaches on forgiveness and Peter says, well, how many times should I forgive those who sin against me? The question there is the same as in the Good Samaritan parable. Who's my neighbor? Do I really have to forgive him? Do I really have to forgive her? You mean I have to have an attitude of forgiveness? A heart that's willing to forgive? And Jesus answers, yes. Forgive 70 times 7. Now, I know in our human nature this is difficult to do, but it's our call. It's a mistake, and I mean this with all my heart, to think that the steadfast love of God and compassion is only something that God does. It's not. We're called to do this. Now, here's what helps me. How can we do this? How can we, we, we respond in forgiveness to those who have hurt us? Well, Colossians 3.13 gives us the answer. I'll read it to you. For the sake of time, it says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as who, as the Lord, has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So how are we called to forgive as Christians as the Lord forgives? How does the Lord forgive? Psalm 51, 1. David knew this. He prays to God. This is one of the most famous psalms because it expresses how David is dealing with the sin that he has committed. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to my sacrifices? Nope. According to the things that I do? Nope. According to your steadfast love and compassion, blot out, cleanse, forgive my sins. According to your, David is wise in his prayer. He does not appeal to the works that he can do. He appeals to the steadfast love of God to the compassion of God. How does Christ forgive us? He forgives us according to his steadfast love, according to his compassion. And so we must also do with others. So let me illustrate it to you this way. In my relationship with God, I am not the victim. I'm the offenser. I'm not the victim. I'm not the one that's been offended. In my relationship with God, I'm the offenser, and he's the victim, yet he does not take the role of victim. God doesn't go, well, if Henry says sorry to me, I'll forgive him. 
full. If Henry says three Ave Maria, three Hail Marys, I'll forgive him. If Henry gives me tickets to the Super Bowl as if God needs that. But you get the point. He can't be bribed. He doesn't do it on the basis of what I do. He does it on the basis of who he is. And as a result, all I can do is bow and repent. David, again, understood this in Psalm 51. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression according to your steadfast love. And as a result, David surrenders. He repents. He regrets what he's done. When others offend us, we must remember this is Colossians' call here. We must remember that God forgives our transgressions, so we have no right to look at people and go, do they deserve it? Do they deserve my forgiveness? That's not how the Christian acts now. I know that it's hard. I know that it takes time. I know that it's not easy. I don't want to put a yoke of burden over your life, but we need to understand that Scripture does not excuse us from doing it. It is difficult. It is hard. Every day we face challenges. Tomorrow you'll be on the road, and there will be a reason to not express compassion and steadfast love, yet the Christian is called to do so. So when we go back to Hosea, it's not just Hosea enacting God's love towards Israel. That's a misunderstanding of what's going on. Hosea will bring back Gomer, even though he has no reason to. He should divorce her. He should let her waste away her life, yet he won't do it because just as God is compassionate, he's called to be compassionate, and the Christian is called to be compassionate, which takes us to the New Testament. How does God show compassion to the Christian? Now, Colossians gives us a hint. I'm going to read this to you as well in Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 4, you know what, let me just go to it. I had it in my notes. If I can find it, I'll just read it to you off my sheet. If not, I'll go to it. Ephesians chapter 2. Here it is. You can read this on your own or at home, but write this down. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. I want you to notice the language here. But God being rich in mercy, same as Hosea, this is the obviously from Hebrew to Greek, but it's that word compassion. God being rich in mercy, in compassion, because of the great love. Does that not sound like Exodus 34? Because of his steadfast, abounding love, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, not by works, not by human action. Again, David understood this in Psalm 51.1. It's, it's not by my merit, but it's by grace that you have been saved. Verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. God's love in the New Testament is expressed through the sacrifice 
of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's on the same basis as why God is redeeming Israel back to himself in Hosea. It's rooted in his compassion and it's rooted in his steadfast love which has an undertone of forgiveness. God does not look at the sinner and go, do they deserve it? Does the sinner deserve to be saved? That's not how God saves us. It's in our sin that he saves us. Psalm 136, as I prepare to close, we're not going to read this, but Psalm 136 is a summary. Literally, it's the whole doctrine of God's steadfast love because it's a repeated term time and time again in Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is your classic Hebrew psalm, your, your classic Hebrew poetry. There's, there's, there's clause A and clause B, clause A and clause B. And in Psalm 136, all the clauses that are in clause A change. Uh, God is give thanks to the Lord. And then in verse 2, it's he's the God of gods. And verse 3, he's the Lord of lords. And then verse 4 jumps into he's the, the, the God of creation, of, of the heavens, and then the lights. And, and, and the psalm goes all the way down to he delivered us from Egypt and from other kings. So, so that's all the clauses A's, but all the B clauses end with his love endures forever. So to read them together... Give thanks to the Lord because his love endures forever. He is the God of gods because his love endures forever. He is the Lord of lords because his love endures forever. He created the heavens because his love endures forever. And so on and so on. And we get to Psalm 136. And he says, he slaughtered the firstborn in Egypt. Consequence of evil actions. Again, we can't ignore that in God's steadfast love. That's in verse 10. He slaughtered the firstborn of Egypt, because his love endures forever. Yeah, there is a consequence to sin, and it's under God's steadfast love. But for the believer, there's forgiveness. In this case, not necessarily a tone of forgiveness in the day of atonement, but rather a term of substitutionary atonement. All that simply means is that it should have fallen on Israel, but it doesn't. It falls on the lamb that was slain. And in verse 11, it says, who delivered you from the Egyptians because his love endures forever. One of my mentors at school, Dr. Carson, explains the Day of Atonement this way, or he illustrates it this way, and I think it helps us understand how God's steadfast love works. If you remember in Exodus 12, when God gives the Day of Atonement, the law, what Israel is supposed to do, God gives the command that on that night, the Israelites are to slaughter a lamb and they are to put blood on the doorposts and on the lentils of the doors. And whoever has put blood on the doorposts and on the lentils, when the angel of death comes by, he will pass over those houses and only slaughter the firstborns of those who have no blood on the doorpost, which most commonly would have been the Egyptians who had no idea about the command. So I want you to picture this so we can understand God's steadfast love rooted on who he is and not on what we do. Bob and Gregory that night come out to the front yard. 
And Bob looks at Greg and he goes, man, I'm a little nervous about tonight. Everything that's been going on these past few days, the Nile turning into blood, frogs everywhere. What the heck is that about? Flies and pestilence and, and destruction everywhere. I'm a little nervous about this angel of death. And Greg looks at Bob, what are you nervous about? Haven't you put the blood on the doorposts? Haven't you put the blood on the lentils? And, and, and Bob looks at Greg, well, yeah, of course I've done that. I mean, I'm, I'm not dumb. I, I, I've done that much. I, I trust God enough to do that. But I'm still scared, man. I've got only one son. I don't know what's, what's going to happen. I'm worried. And Greg looks at Bob and he says, man, I ain't scared. I'm going to go inside my house, bring on the angel of death. Tonight, me and my family, we're going to feast on this Passover meal. They both go inside the house. That night, the angel of death comes through and visits each home. The question I want to ask you is, who lost their son that night? And the answer is, Nobody. Because the passing over of the angel of death has nothing to do with the intensity of my faith or the intensity of my clarity or how I think things are going to turn out. They have nothing to do with how I react. They have everything to do with the blood that's been put on the doorpost by the lamb, the blood that was shattered. It has nothing to do with me. And my response to that is the same as Psalm 106. We give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. In verse 23, his steadfast love remembers when I'm in my low state. So in my low state, his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 24, when the enemy rises, his steadfast love endures forever. When I need provision, he provides food because his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 26, give thanks for his steadfast love endures forever. It endures in Hosea, even though Israel's been unfaithful. Hosea shows this steadfast love with his wife Gomer, even though she's been unfaithful. And in the New Testament, the Christian can rest assured that God shows his steadfast love despite of our sin. We will face consequences, but he shows his steadfast love. He will forgive our sins. And so I want us to pray in the basis of Psalm 103. David puts it this way. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. I may be worried this morning. I may have a lot of doubts this morning. But one thing I can rest assured is God's steadfast love and his compassion endures forever. I want us to stand up and let's pray.
Father, as we come before you this morning, we do not come with prideful hearts. We do not come undermining sin. We very much in fear and trembling and in a desire to pursue your holiness understand that there is a consequence to sin. But, but this morning we come humbly in thankfulness because we know that your steadfast love endures forever. Your steadfast love rescues your people in the times of Hosea, your steadfast love calls us to show forgiveness to one another, but your steadfast love also forgives us and redeems us. And even if we fail, we come before you humbly because we know that you show compassion and forgiveness towards the sinner. And Lord, I pray that you would continue even today to open up hearts and show steadfast love and compassion towards sinners, towards us that are so frail and feeble. Show your compassion to us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray and we all say amen.